All right, John chapter number 1, and I'd like to read one verse this morning. And I don't normally do this, but I would like to use it as a springboard to preach to you a thought that I believe will be an encouragement. It encouraged me as I studied it, and so I trust it will encourage you as well. John chapter number 1, and I'd like to just read verse number 29, and then we'll pray. The Word of God says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Let's read it once more. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I'd ask that your Son would be magnified in this service, that he'd be lifted up, that we'd see him for who he is, high and holy, separate from sinners, Lord, majestic, powerful to save, and worthy of all the glory that will take place in this house today. I pray, Father, that you would speak to hearts, that you'd encourage us in these truths as we take a few moments just to ponder and to preach about your Son. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the passage that's before us, we hear uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, referenced as the Lamb of God. You'll find all through Scripture that sometimes symbolic words are used to convey a truth about Jesus Christ. You'll find that the Bible teaches us that He's both the root and the stem of Jesse. Now, isn't that interesting? He's the root. He's where David came from, but He's the stem. He also came from David. Now, there's a paradox, mind you, but we have an eternal God. It's no great leap for Him uh, to have been before all things. He looked at the Pharisees and He said before Abraham was, I am. He's known as the root and the stem of Jesse. He's known uh, as the tender plant that grew up before them uh, out of dry ground. He's known as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The Bible says that his name would be called Wonderful and Counselor and the Mighty God and the Everlasting Father. On and on we could go about the names of Jesus Christ. But I believe there's probably no title, no symbolic name given to Jesus Christ that is more familiar to us or is more even familiar to the world than this title, the Lamb of God. You know, there's a lot of animals that are mentioned in the Word of God. In fact, it would astound you sometime to just do a study of all the animals that are mentioned in the Word of God. But you'll find no animal that is mentioned more prominently than the lamb or the sheep. You say, preacher, why is that? Well, it's because this animal is picturesque of Jesus Christ. And the entire Word of God is about Jesus Christ. So if you're going to hear about an animal that is representative of Him, you're going to hear about the Lamb of God more than anything else because it's all about Him. I'd like to take a few moments this morning and just go through the Word of God and just see Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. Turn with me to Genesis chapter number 22. Genesis chapter number 22. Most of you know exactly the story that we're going to read an excerpt from before we even get there. Uh, we find in Genesis chapter 22 that God has commissioned Abram to go up upon uh, Mount Moriah to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, uh, to build an altar, to lay his son upon it, and to slay him. Uh, the Bible teaches us that Abram went uh, into the wilderness and then he departed with Isaac from his servants and went three days into the wilderness. The Bible says when he came to the place, he looked afar off, he saw the place. You know, can I say that it'd still do us good as Christians to take a few moments and just look at the place sometimes, amen? 
Uh, You say, what place, preacher? Well, I'd say it's two places. One is the place of Calvary we ought to look to. Amen. We ought to look to the place of Calvary. We ought to open our Bibles and read about Calvary. We ought to tell sinners about Calvary. We ought to rejoice with saints about Calvary. But then there's a second place. There's Calvary, and then there's Calvary for you. You say, what do you mean, preacher, by Calvary for you? Well, there's only one Calvary. There's only one Golgotha. There's only one place that Christ was crucified. He won't be crucified again. But then there was the place when I, as a ten-year-old boy, and you, at whatever age you came to know Christ, when you came to Calvary. And you ought to take a few moments every now and then and just think about that place, that place that was Calvary for you, where you, for the first time, really saw Jesus crucified, evidently set forth among you, and you called upon him to forgive you and save you. That do us some good. And so in Genesis chapter 22, as they're going up the mountain, the Bible says in verse number 6, verse 6, the Bible says, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, uh, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Could I say to you, first off, that Jesus Christ is the promised lamb in the Word of God. Do you understand that Calvary was not an audible that was called after the kingdom failed? Amen? Uh, Calvary was not just uh, uh, the picking up of the pieces of a tragic life, but Calvary was always the plan. Uh, the Bible says in the book of Acts that he was delivered up by the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Calvary was always God's plan of redemption for fallen man. And all the way back here in Genesis chapter 22, did you notice the wording of it? It doesn't say God will provide a lamb for himself. Oh, now, if it had said that, it would have still been true, and it would have still been a beautiful message. But no, the Word of God says right there in front of you, not that God will provide a lamb for himself, but that God will provide himself a lamb. Could I say to you that there were many lambs that were sacrificed in Israel for many, many years? It would astound us if we could see uh, collectively and concentrated all the billions of gallons of blood that had flown off, uh, that had uh, that, that had rolled off of the Temple Mount over thousands of years. If we could see just in one place uh, the millions of lambs that must have been offered uh, upon that altar. But the Bible says that if these had been sufficient, there would have been no more need of sacrifice. Uh, one thing about it, the Bible says that in these sacrifices in Hebrews chapter number nine, there is a rem- Remembrance of sin. Every time they offered a lamb, they knew another lamb was going to have to be offered. Every time that they brought that spotless lamb, spotless according to their assessment, spotless in their eyes. But you see, those lambs, they may have been spotless, but they weren't sufficient. Amen? Uh, Every time they brought those lambs, uh, there was always the reminder, I'm going to be doing this again. The people are going to sin again. Another sacrifice will be required. But what about the lamb that God was looking for? You see, all these lambs just look forward to another lamb. And it's the lamb that's spoken of in Genesis 22. God will provide himself. That had never happened before. 
And can I propose to you that it's unique in the realm of quote-unquote religion in the day that we live in. We find that every world religion uh, is all about the adherents sacrificing themselves for the deity. But oh, isn't it just like God to turn this world on its ear by sending His Son to die for your sins and for mine. It wasn't just that God provided a lamb for Himself, it was that God provided Himself for a lamb. This was the promised lamb. John knew this. That's why what we read just a moment ago, it wasn't lost on John. It wasn't, you see, we live in a day where we're familiar with this terminology, the Lamb of God. But you have to understand that in the Jewish mind, uh, the Messiah was not to be both uh, political and sacrificial. They couldn't fathom that. That's the reason when Christ came, uh, that the disciples looked at him and said, Well, thou at this time restore again your kingdom. That's the reason that the Pharisees went and said that he goes throughout uh, all this place and he's trying to spread insurrection. He's trying to cause a revolution uh, because they believed that Christ believed he was the Messiah. And in believing so, they expected him to set up an earthly kingdom. But, oh, how many Jews it must have been lost off what the Bible teaches in Isaiah 53, that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. But you see, it wasn't lost on John the Baptist, uh, surely John's mind must have hearkened back to that famous statement that Abraham made, God will provide himself a lamb. And for thousands of years, the Jewish people had been saying, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Where is that sacrifice that will satisfy an almighty God? Where is that sacrifice that can finally abate the judgment of almighty God? And then on this day, John looks out and he says, behold, behold. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. I'd say to you this morning that He is the promised Lamb. But turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Peter chapter number 1. 1 Peter chapter number 1. Peter had a keen understanding of the impact of the Messiah on the Jewish mind. Peter was, uh, the Bible teaches us, the apostle to the circumcision, Paul to the uncircumcision. And uh, Peter, uh, in writing both First and Second Peter, those are what we call uh, Jewish Christian or Hebrew Christian epistles. And John or uh, Peter was writing to Hebrew Christians, and listen to how he describes our Lord and Savior in First Peter chapter one, verse number eighteen. He says, "For as much as ye know." that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Now, why did Peter say this? Because those that had been ensnared in Judaism and in legalism believed that because of who they were and what they'd done and what their standing was, that they was going to get to heaven, that they had some sort of elite status with God because they were Jews. And uh, Peter says, no, 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 you've not been redeemed with those things. Look what it says. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. I'd say to you this morning that not only was he the promised lamb, but he was the perfect lamb. He was the perfect lamb. All the stringent requirements and guidelines for a lamb to be offered under Old Testament law. I mean, you understand that under Old Testament law, when we think of, uh, you know, without spot and without blemish, we just uh, assume that that means, oh, well, you know, it didn't have any major deformities or any major problems. Uh, but do you understand that part of the responsibility of the Old Testament priest was to scrutinize that lamb before it could be offered, to look it over for any blemish, for any spot, to search through its wool, to look upon its skin, to feel it. I mean, you've seen these jokers on in the dog shows, haven't you? You've seen them before? I, I've watched dog shows before. You know why I can't watch them? Because I see a dog show and I just see a dog. Amen. It's all I see. 
And they'll talk about it, it, it's, it's, uh, its front quarters and its hind quarters and its teeth and its back and its tail. Uh, they'll talk about its personality. They'll talk about its likes and, and not likes, whether it likes long walks on the beach or sitting beside a fireside. They've got all these standards that they judge these dogs by. I look at it and I think, well, it's just an ugly old dog. And in much the same way, the Old Testament priest was commissioned with scrutinizing these lambs, looking it all over. But do you know that that lamb could not do something that the lamb could do? That lamb could only atone. It could never propitiate for the sins of mankind. It could only cover uh, the sins for a moment, for a period of time, as it looked forward towards Calvary, as it pointed towards the suffering Savior, and the wrath of God was for a moment stayed, but it could never take it away. Why? Because we were made in God's image. You understand that? And the sin, the sin that that lamb was atoning for, the sin that that lamb was being offered for was not the sin of another lamb, but it was the sin of a human being. The sin of one that was God's creation, God's creature, that had sinned and rebelled against an almighty God, that had thumbed his nose at the great deity, that had shook his fist at the loving Father, and it took a man to die for man's sins. But it couldn't just be man. Why couldn't it just be man? Because each man has to pay for his own sins. You see, even if I could die for your sins, that still wouldn't redeem you. I've still got my sins to die for. But the Bible teaches us that God sent forth His only begotten Son, born of the flesh, born of a woman, and born under the law to redeem them that were under the law. How? He fulfilled every jot and tittle of the Old Testament law. He was the perfect Jew. The Bible gives us three categories of his sinlessness. The Bible says that he knew no sin, that he did no sin, and that in him was no sin. You know what that means? In him was no sin reflects the fact that he had no sin nature. He was born of a earthly quote-unquote mother. We can use, I guess, that terminology. But he was not born of an earthly father. Your Bible tells you he is born of an earthly father. You throw it out and get you a new one. Amen. Only one time that Joseph is ever called his father in Scripture, and it's Mary saying it, and she's out of the will of God when she's saying it. He was not born of an earthly father. He was born of a heavenly father. The Bible teaches us that our sin nature is passed to us uh, through our fathers. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. It comes through the, uh, through the male. It comes through the father. Some of you ladies ought to be saying hallelujah there. It comes through the man. But our uh, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he was not born of an earthly father. He was born of a heavenly father that had no sin nature. And so just as we take upon ourselves the nature of our fathers, he took upon him the nature of his father. And he was absolutely sinless. He had, a, uh, he had no sin nature. Not only in him was no sin, but he did no sin. That means he never committed a single sin. Never committed a single sin. You want to know one of the great litmus tests that you can do uh, about all this Hollywood nonsense? I, I, I'm going to tell you right now. Anytime Hollywood comes out with anything about Christianity or the Bible or Jesus Christ, you ought to approach it with an attitude of skepticism. You ought to approach it that way. You say, preacher, are you saying there's nothing good out? Well, I don't think there's much good coming out of Hollywood, but hey, maybe it, maybe it will turn out all right. But you ought to approach it with an attitude of skepticism. A, a lot of this stuff that exists today, uh, the, the church is becoming more worldly and the world is becoming more churchy and we're calling it revival and it's not. The Bible says, and one of the great litmus tests, I'll get back to preaching in a minute. One of the great litmus tests is ask yourself this, do they present Jesus Christ as sinless? Sinless. A lot of the nonsense and garbage that's come out 
uh, in the past 40, 50 years out of Hollywood that tried to portray Christ, uh, they always have him in some lurid and illicit behavior. You can mark her down right there that there's not a grain of truth in that whole thing from beginning to end because the Bible says he did no sin. And then there's a third category that's mentioned. The Bible says he knew no sin. What does it mean that he knew no sin? Not only did he have no sin nature, not only did he commit no outward sins, but he also did not commit any inward sins of the thought or of the heart. There's a lot of things. Let me tell you something. Most of us, most of us now, and don't look at me judgmental because it's true about you like it's true about me. If you could pry our heads open and look at what goes on in our mind and in our heart, there wouldn't be a one of us that'd be able to come through them doors with our head hung high. Every one of us. I don't care who you are. We all have sins of the heart and sins of the mind and things that we allow to pass through and then sometimes things that we indulge as they pass through but not our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that He knew no sin. In Him was the Spirit of wisdom. He had no unrighteousness whatsoever. I see Him as the perfect Lamb. But turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter number 53. And uh, Isaiah 53 is probably one of my favorite chapters in all the Word of God. You say, what does that mean to me, preacher? Nothing, but it means a lot to me because <laughs> I like it. It blesses my heart. Isaiah 53 presents to us the suffering Savior. If the Jews could have grasped Isaiah 53, they wouldn't have hung him upon a cross. Now, I'm thankful that uh, because uh, through their unbelief, we have been led to believe. I'm thankful that through their rejecting of Christ, we were given as Gentiles the opportunity to accept Christ because he died on Calvary. But if they could have just grasped Isaiah 53, what a difference it would have made in their lives. I want you to look at one verse, and then I want you to keep your place there, because we're going to go somewhere else and then come back. Isaiah 53, uh, look with me at verse number 7. This entire chapter is about Jesus Christ. Look what the Bible says. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. I see Christ as the promised lamb, see him as the perfect lamb, but I see him as the passive lamb in Isaiah 53, 7. Oh, my, if we could just see. Do you know that the ultimate picture of meekness is that of Calvary? You know what meekness is? Meekness is right authority and strength kept in check by grace. That's what meekness is. Having the right having the authority and having the strength to accomplish something, but being prohibited by grace. Do you understand that upon the cross of Calvary, and it's significant, it's significant. When it says he opened not his mouth, do you know that the first time that he opened his mouth, the worlds were created? Do you understand that the very night before they crucified him, when he opened his mouth and said his name, he said, I am, that they flung backwards on the ground through the mighty power of his word? He said, my words are spirit and they are life. And so for him to be led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, meaning speechless, so he opened not his mouth. That's significant because it tells me that when he could have called 10,000 angels. And listen to me, you know, we, we say that all the time. And I, I, and I understand it. That's fine. We say he could have called. Ten, he didn't have to call 10,000 angels. He could have spoke a word and obliterated every one of them in that moment. But we see that he did not do this. Why? Because of a display of meekness. It was his right to do that. He didn't deserve to hang on that cross. If just, listen to me, if, if and I'm going to try to word this carefully, if true justice had been done that day, 
Now, God's righteousness and His holiness was vindicated, so I'm not implying that there's anything wrong with the cross. You know that. But if true justice had been done that day, they would have took Him off and put every one of us on. He, did, he had the right to leave that cross, but He chose not to. He had the authority to leave that cross. I mean, it, he ha- if anybody had the right and if anybody had the authority, you know what authority is, don't you? And I'm trying to be very careful with what I say. I don't want to say anything that the Holy Ghost wouldn't have me to say. But do you understand that authority, authority is when your power is verified by righteousness. That's what authority is. To have the authority means that righteousness has, has authorized your power and your ability. And do you understand, he had the authority to come off of that cross. If he had chose, listen now, if he had chose to leave that cross, there wouldn't have been a thing. There wouldn't have been a, The Father, the Father could not have put him back on that cross if he hadn't wanted to be on the cross. Now, I understand we're talking about what ifs and, and why nots, and I understand that that can be awful fruitless sometimes, but I'm trying to give you a picture of what Christ did and His meekness. He had the right, He had the authority, and He had the power to do it. All the armies of the world couldn't have kept Him on that cross. If he hadn't wanted to be on that cross. So what was it that kept him there? Well, if meekness is right, authority, and power kept in check by grace, I'd say it was grace that kept Him on that cross. He willingly chose. He chose to go that way. He said, no man taketh my life from me. No man taketh me my life from me. He said, but I lay it down of myself. He said, this power is given me from my Father. No one could have done it, but He chose out of love for you, out of love for me, to go to the cross of Calvary. I see that He is not only the promised Lamb, I see that He in these passages is not only the perfect Lamb and the passive Lamb, but turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Hold your place in Isaiah 53. We'll be right back there, but turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. You'll find in the Word of God that the scarlet cord of redemption of the Son of God runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation. You'll find that the entire Bible is about Jesus Christ. Not just a portion here or there. You'll find him just as much in Genesis as you will in Matthew. And you'll find him just as much in Revelation as you will in John. And in Revelation chapter number 13, listen to what verse 8 says. The Bible says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of, the, in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Let me read that once more. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, we touched on this a moment ago, but I want to focus on something different. I see not only that He is the promised Lamb and the perfect Lamb and the passive Lamb, but I see that He is the Passover Lamb. Notice that word, slain, slain. The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You remember the story. You've been taught it since you were just little of that dark night in Egypt, after judgment plagues had passed, and Pharaoh would not let God's people go. How that Moses came, told Pharaoh that this night the death angel will pass through this land. And there is only one means, there is only one way that the firstborn can be spared. The Bible teaches us that they were to take a lamb, 
It was to be set aside. In fact, the Feast of Passover harkens back to it. And to this day, Orthodox Jews still observe this Feast of Passover. On the tenth day, the Bible says that a lamb would be taken and separated from the flock on the tenth day. Do you understand that? Oh, I like this. And on the fourteenth day, it would be offered. So on the tenth day, the tenth, that's, that's the tenth and then the eleventh and twelfth and thirteenth and four, five days before it would be offered. Do you understand that the Bible teaches us that it was approximately five days? In fact, it was exactly five days when our Lord rode into Jerusalem upon the back of a donkey on which no man had ever sat. Set aside, set forth. He looked at his disciples and he said, I go to Jerusalem to be delivered up of the chief priests and to be crucified and to rise again the third day. The book of Isaiah tells us that he set his face as a flint towards Jerusalem. And on that tenth day of the month of Bib, which is sort of equivalent to our month of April or, or March, the Jews go by lunar calendar, that on that tenth day he rode in and they cried out, Hosanna to the highest. And then upon the fifth day, you know, on the fourth night was when he had his disciples gathered. On the fourth night, he had his disciples gathered, and he was teaching them, and he girded a towel about himself, and he washed their feet. and They went down to the Mount of Olives, and there upon that night, the Bible teaches us that he was taken by the chief priests. You see, all this pictures for us the Passover lamb. It wasn't enough that the lamb be set aside. The lamb also had to be slain. Do you understand that Christ, listen, Christ could not have just died any death. He couldn't have just been hung to death. He couldn't have been poisoned to death because the Bible teaches that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And just as the shedding of the blood of the Lamb was required at the Passover, you know what they were to do? They were to kill the Lamb. They were to roast it with fire. They were to consume all of it with bitter herbs and with with garlic. And they were to leave none of it till the morning. They were to gather if the lamb was too big. By the way, there's no provision if the lamb's too small. Amen? There's only a provision if the lamb was too big. Uh, You see, the lamb was always going to be big enough for the household. And they would gather in the strangers if the lamb was too big for their household. And they'd consume it all in that night. And they'd take the blood and they would spread it upon the lintels and upon the doorposts of their house. And the shed blood applied stayed the judgment of God through the angel of death from entering into their house. Do you understand that Christ had to die in the way that He died? It wasn't an accident. It wasn't just the culture of the times. He had to die in the way that He died. Blood had to be shed for you and I so that blood could be applied for you and I. I believe that blood was applied, don't you? I believe that he entered into heaven and placed it upon that heavenly mercy. See, you said, oh, preacher, there's no heavenly mercy. Well, that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that the earthly things are patterned after the heavenly things. The blood was applied in heaven. And there was no more need for a sacrifice. You're in Isaiah 53. I hope you've kept your place. I want you to look with me at verse number 6. I see that he's the promised lamb and the perfect lamb and the passive lamb and the Passover lamb. But look what it says in verse number 6. The Bible says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. What a picture of the world. Every one to his own way. You know why there's so much fussing and fighting in this world that we live in? Because nobody's going God's way, but nobody's going each other's way either. They've all turned to their own way. Every man's doing that which seemeth to be right in his own eyes. And that's the day that we live in. 
The Bible says everyone to his own way. What happened? And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. I see that he is the presented lamb in the word of God. Do you know that in the Old Testament, there's a lot of misnomers about what took place when a sacrifice was given in the Old Testament. Typically, when a sacrifice was given, uh, the only exception was whenever there would be uh, someone that was so poor that they couldn't uh, that they couldn't bring a bullock or a lamb to be offered. Then the priest would take the turtle doves or the pigeons that were given, and he would flay them and he would sacrifice them. But do you understand that typically, typically, the priest was never the one that took the life of the offering. Only upon the Day of Atonement, because he was offering for his own sins and for the sins of the people. And also whenever the birds were to be offered. But typically, the priest never took the life of the sacrifice. This is how it would go. The person would bring their offering, confessing and acknowledging that they had sinned. You know, a lot of people won't get saved because they won't come to Jesus. And they won't come to Jesus because they don't think they need a Savior. And they don't think they need a Savior because they don't believe they're a sinner. They won't come because they won't acknowledge their sin. That's the day that we, that's why it's so nonsensical, a bunch of religious heretics that want to present to us a Savior without us being sinners. If we're not sinners, there's no need for a Savior. But the reality of a Savior tells me this, that I'm a sinner. We see that they would bring this sacrifice. And they would present it before the priest, and the priest would examine it, look over it, and then look at them and say, yes, this sacrifice is fit. Do you remember that three times the voice of God came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He said, I do always the things that please my Father, is what Christ said. There was, there was heavenly approval upon the earthly life of Jesus Christ. And then you know what that offer would do? That offer would come and He would lay His hands upon the head of that offering. And he would pronounce over it the sins that he had committed. And in that action, he was presenting that lamb as a sacrifice, as an offering. That lamb became the vicarious substitute for the judgment of God. He was literally laying his sins upon that lamb. Then into his hand, the priest would give the ceremonial blade. And the man that had sinned, would be the one that would draw the blade across its throat and slay it. But do you know that we see a little bit different picture in Calvary, just a little bit? I'm thankful that when I've sinned and when I've done unrighteously, I can come to the throne room of God with the Lamb of God, and I can point to His blood and say, Lord, forgive me, I've sinned, I've done unrighteously. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful I can look towards Calvary and say, Lord, I've messed up, I've sinned, but you've laid my sin upon Jesus Christ, and it's already been paid for. Lord, forgive me and take me back into fellowship with you. But do you know that when Calvary, when the Bible says, God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were the enemies of God. We were alienated from God. And so you know what happened? We couldn't lay our sin on Him, so the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. There upon that cross... You'll see the sins of every single person ever born or ever will be born hanging upon the shoulders of the Son of God. They're suspended above the earth but below the heaven as though it's a bridge to the presence of God. You find that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And there our sin was placed upon Him. Every lie you've ever told, everything you've ever stole, every thought that you've ever had, 
that was displeasing to the presence of God was at that moment placed upon the presented lamb as God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. I see not only that he is the presented lamb, but I want to give you just a couple more. I, I believe you love me enough to hang with me. Look, look what it says in the book of Revelation chapter 5. Oh, if the story had ended there. Aren't you thankful the story didn't end there? Aren't you thankful? I remember hearing a story one time that D.L. Moody, great evangelist, had gotten a fella to come. And I, I used to know the fella's name, but it's lost on me now. Amen. I can't even remember what I had for supper last night. But had this fella come in and preach one of his tent, they'd have citywide tent meetings all over, and they'd have tents in, in five, six, seven locations throughout a city, and they'd be holding meetings at the same time. And he asked a brother to come and to preach. And Dr. Moody stepped in at that time into that tent to hear the man preach. And the man got up, and he preached, and he preached, and he preached on Jesus Christ crucified. But then before he could get done, he had to close. And he said, now we've left Jesus. He's laying in the tomb, but you come back tomorrow. And he said, I'll preach to you some more. After it was done, Dale Moody pulled the fellow aside and he said, you're never going to preach in one of my meetings again. He said, get your Bible and go home. And he said, Brother Moody, what, what have I done? I'm sorry if I've offended you. I'm sorry if I've... What's the problem? He said, well, you got up tonight and you preached Christ crucified. He said, well, yes, Brother Moody, of course I did. It's what we're supposed to preach. He said, oh, yes, brother, you are supposed to preach Christ crucified. But he said, don't leave him in the grave. He can't help anybody in the grave. Don't just preach him crucified. Preach him resurrected too. I see that he is the presented lamb. But Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 6 says this, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, well, I like this, stood a lamb, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Do you see it there? Did it ring to you? It doesn't say laid a lamb. It doesn't say was buried a lamb. But all the way in the book of Revelation, John upon the Isle of Patmos in exile is lifted up in a heavenly vision and sees things that no man had ever seen before. And there at the throne room of God, with the Ancient of Days seated upon His throne, with 24 elders gathered around, crying out, Holy, 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 the four beasts that are surrounding the throne, the sea of glass that is before it, the rainbow around the throne. And the Bible teaches us that there in that place that a book was brought forth with seven seals upon it. And they said, who's worthy to open the book? Who's worthy to open the book? And they looked around and they could find no one. The Bible says that they wept for no one was to be found. You know, that's a picture of humanity. That's a picture of mankind. For thousands of years, mankind wept and said, who's worthy? Who's worthy to open the book? Who's worthy to open the way to heaven? Who's worthy to get us to the throne room of God? And then John says, I saw a lamb standing. I saw a lamb standing. I saw a lamb standing. And he was worthy to open the book. I see that he is the powerful lamb because he's been resurrected. Do you understand that Christ couldn't do a thing for you if he was still laying in a grave? Couldn't do a thing for you. Do you know that it was not enough that he died? 
When he died, it may have abated the justice of God. When he died, it may have vindicated the holiness of an offended God, but it could not apply that forgiveness to our hearts and draw us into the presence of God. That, my friends, is an act of justification. And the Bible says that when we was raised from the dead, we were justified with Him. It's not enough that He died, but He must rise again, and He has risen again. The Lamb has not been left on the altar or in the tomb. There's lots of folks today, and they, and they wear the crucifixes. And I don't know, maybe they do it because they believe it, maybe they do it for fashion, I don't know. But I would like to serve notice on everyone that's praying to those little idols, and that's what they are. I would like to serve notice to them that my Jesus Christ is not on the cross any longer, nor will He be returning to it. He's already died and paid for the sins of mankind, but not just died. The Bible teaches us He was laid in a borrowed tomb, and for three days and three nights. You know, that's why He couldn't have been crucified on a Friday. It amazes me this is so lost on people. And I, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but the basic arithmetic, the basic arithmetic that I took in school teaches me that you can't cram 72 hours in between Friday evening and Sunday morning. Couldn't have been crucified. The Bible teaches us after three days and three nights, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. The Bible says in the book of Acts chapter 2 that death could not hold him. He was not able to be holding us. You can imagine the surprise on death's face, can't you? You can imagine the surprise on that. And I don't know, the Bible personifies death. I don't necessarily believe that death is... But but you just you just let me have fun and let me, let me just give me a minute with my sanctified imagination. You can see the look on death's face. You can see as Christ entered into his domain. He looked at him and he said, well, he don't look like much. Look at him all beaten. Look at him all bloody and bruised. He don't look like much. Look at that crown of thorns on his head. Look at those nail prints in his hands. He don't look like much. I'll hold on to him. I'll hold on to him like I've held on to every other one. I'll hold on to him like I've held on to old Nimrod. I'll hold on to him like I've held on to old Alexander the Great. All of these leaders that have come along and all these folks have started these movements that said, that ain't no challenge for me. Look at him. He don't look like much. I'll hold on to him. But like Samson of old, his strength was not seen in his physical beauty or his physical build. The Bible teaches us that death grabbed hold of him. Christ broke his arms, took his crown, broke his scepter, and came out of the grave. They said, I ain't never run into anybody like him. <laughs> I ain't never run into anybody like him before. I could hold all of him. Christ says, I won't be holding of you. We see that he's the powerful lamb. But let me give you one final truth and I'll hush. We've already read it in John one twenty nine. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. I'd say tonight, this morning, whenever we are, I get to preach in a big way and I just lose track of time. I see that he's the purifying lamb. See, none of this does you a bit of good unless you get a hold of that truth. He's the purifying lamb. It's all just academic till you've met the purifying lamb. It's all just vain religion and dead works 
till you've met the purifying lamb. But he's able to take away the sin of the world. He's able to take away your sin. Your loved ones, he can save them. Never a problem with the lamb being too small for the house. It was the house being too small for the lamb. He can save your loved ones. You wouldn't be here today. If you've been born again, you wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't be in this building. Listen, this foolish preacher go on and on, except you've met the purifying lamb. You've had that experience just like John. And you know that's a command, behold, behold, to look upon, behold. And I'd say today that the greatest thing, if you've never been saved, that you can do is you can behold the purifying lamb. If you've got loved ones, can I tell you what's going to help them? Now, I, I, I mean, encourage them to come to church. They might come to church, hear some preaching, hear some singing, and, and, and see Christ crucified and get saved. But listen, it's not coming through those doors won't save your, your loved one. They've got to meet the purifying lamb. Getting them baptized isn't going to save. They've got to meet the purifying lamb. But I promise you this, if they meet him, they'll never be the same. I've never been the same. So I'd say this. You have two responsibilities. And I know, listen, I, I know most folks in this room say, Preacher, I've been born again, and, uh, and at least half of you, I believe it. <laughs> you have two responsibilities. One is this. If you've never been saved, why don't you meet that purifying lamb before it's everlasting too late? He's powerful enough to save you, and he's willing to do it. But then, too, if you're saved and you say, Preacher, I've got lost loved ones, then I encourage you to do two things. One, as God opens a door for you, would you tell them about the purifying lamb? They might not have anybody that loves them enough to tell them about Jesus. You say, oh, they know, Preacher. Yeah, they know about him, but they don't know him. You know him. It's one thing to know about him. It's another thing to know him. And listen, it's one thing to listen to somebody that knows about him. But it's another thing to listen to somebody that knows him and can say, he can do for you what he's done for me. Tell him about him. And then the second thing is this. Because of that lamb that's purified you, the way into the holiest has been made. The veil has been rent. No more sacrifices needed. That grand sacrifice has been given. And so you, friend, you, friend, can go into a place where at one point in time only the high priest once a year and that under threat of death if he had sin in his life, you can enter into that place, into the very presence of God, and you can plead with the Lord, and you can bring their name up to the throne. They may not take their name to the throne room of grace, but you can take it there. Now, I'm not saying you can pray them saved, but I'm saying you can pray that God will work in their life and convict them and show them their need of Calvary. I wonder this morning if you've got loved ones that have never met the purifying lamb. And I wonder if you'd take advantage of the, of the grand privilege that it is through the blood of the lamb to go into that holiest place and to pray for them.